If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And of course, everyone's tried to identify who the real Arthur is and felt there's no smoke without fire. There must be an historical Arthur because there's so many stories about him. And they've tried to go back to the 5th and 6th century and try to find him archaeologically. What I've tried to do is to go back to the first person who mentions him, who is Geoffrey, and say, what does he say about Arthur? And how does that fit in the context of his book? That was Miles Russell talking about King Arthur. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, we're going to hear from Dr Miles Russell, an archaeologist at Bournemouth University, whose recent book, Arthur and the Kings of Britain, hit the headlines thanks to its claim that the legendary British king did not actually exist. Miles's book centres on a bold new interpretation of Geoffrey of Monmouth's medieval chronicle, The History of the Kings of Britain, which he believes has for too long been overlooked as a source of information about the so-called Dark Ages. Miles was one of the speakers at our recent History Weekend event in Winchester. And while he was there, he found time to chat to our website assistant, Rachel Dinning. 
So I thought we could start by talking about Geoffrey of Monmouth, um, who was one of the first British historians. You explore his work, The History of the Kings of Britain, quite extensively in your latest book. So what can you tell us about Geoffrey and what is in this book that he wrote? Well, Geoffrey of Monmouth uh, wrote the Historia Regum Britanniae, the History of the Kings of Britain, in, in around 1136 AD. And it's probably one of the most uh, important books in, in sort of European literature because it, it creates a whole series of characters like King Lear, um, like uh, Cymbeline, who Shakespeare writes a play about, but most critically, King Arthur. It's the beginning of the Arthur myth. Um, we know almost next to nothing about Geoffrey of Monmouth. We don't even know if he's from Monmouth. I'm not entirely sure his name's Geoffrey, but they, he, we know when he was writing. Um, he's recorded in the 1120s and 1130s in, in Oxford. Um, he's writing in a in a very sort of religious environment. He's writing in a very sort of. Um, you could say, a very pro-British perspective. He's trying to counter the very overtly English histories that have been circulating, histories about the Saxons and the Saxon kingdoms and that side. And to explain there is a whole history of monarchs and societies and states in Britain for hundreds of years before the Saxons arrived. So he's trying to sort of, in that sense, uh, put that side of the record straight. Now, because of that and because of the elements of mythology and magic and mythological beasts that sometimes appear in his work. He's often uh, credited as being a fantasist or some kind of misguided patriot. So it's very easy to dismiss him on all those sort of sides. But really, I think it's, it's quite essential to go back and look what he's saying because there is a lot of evidence in there that isn't covered in other sources. And there's a lot of evidence that's also verified now by archaeological investigation. So we can look at his work with new eyes and say... There is material here that need, that demands to be studied and that does give us a better idea of what was originally going on a thousand, two thousand years ago. Do you think Geoffrey had an agenda when he was writing this book? Certainly, Geoffrey had a, a huge agenda. I mean, the trouble is we know nothing about him as a person. There's, he's called Geoffrey of Monmouth. We're not really sure he's even from Monmouth, but he, he's got a great affinity w- with that sort of area. So he has certainly got an agenda and he's very dismissive of contemporary English writers like William of Malmesbury or Henry of Huntingdon because uh, he feels that they're writing just about the Saxons the, and the Angles. And he wants to put in an idea that they're newcomers to, to this story. There's lots been going on before then. So he certainly has an agenda and he's much criticised at the time by people who don't like that, that, that sort of uh, perspective. But because we know nothing about him, about when he was born, where he grew up, his family, he's just a name and this is his sort of greatest gift to us, it, it, it's difficult sometimes to, to peel apart his point of view in the book. But it is clearly there. It has got a political point to it. Um, and as a lot of the time, he he's, um, outlines the horrors of civil war, the destructive nature of civil war, which would again resonate with the people of the time, because that's what's happening in England. Uh, he can be quite dismissive of female leaders, which might mean that he's on the side of, of Stephen as opposed to Matilda. So it, it could be, you could say that the reason he is um, sometimes views or sometimes describes uh, female leaders as rapacious and difficult and treacherous is that he's putting out a message against the other side in the, in the civil conflict. But a lot of it is guesswork because we really just know nothing about him. So although people 
generally look at this as a piece of mythology, a piece of folklore. What for you is the real, what, what have you unearthed that is the truth in this book? I don't think anyone will be able to unearth the whole truth, but what I've been able to understand is, is really the context that it was written in originally and trying to see the context that the, the stories that Jeffrey's using came from. So we can see there are stories in there that, that originate from the first century BC at a time when Britain is not part of the Roman Empire, a time before history. So we've got folklore and tales, indigenous stories that, that precede our first known historical events in Britain. So we get a chance to see what the Britons thought about themselves and what they thought about Rome. Uh, we get also to identify a whole range of characters who don't normally appear on the pages of history in standard sort of Roman texts. But we also get the chance to try and understand who King Arthur is. And that's really because in Geoffrey's book, Arthur represents about one third of, of the text. He is the big hero to whom the story is building up to. And of course, everyone's tried to identify who the real Arthur is and felt there's no smoke without fire. There must be an historical Arthur because there's so many stories about him. And they've tried to go back to the 5th and 6th century and try to find him archaeologically. What I've tried to do is to go back to the first person who mentions him, who is Geoffrey, and say, what does he say about Arthur? And how does that fit in the context of his book? And what we can see is that everything that happens to Arthur has already happened to at least five other people. So are you saying that Arthur was not necessarily one real person? He was perhaps five different people, yes. a combination of them. The bad news is that Arthur clearly cannot have existed um, because he's a repeat of what's happened before. The good news is he's five separate individuals. And the key one is, is a chap called Ambrosius Aurelianus, who we know did exist in, in the in the fifth uh, and sixth centuries AD. He is the hook upon whom all the rest of the story is is based. So Ambrosius fights a battle, the Battle of Mount Baden, which becomes a key event in Arthur's life. So I think Ambrosius is the core, and upon him we've got a series of other stories and characters built to create a an impossibly fantastic Celtic superhero, uh, a, a hero for the Britons. But Geoffrey's skill is to fabricate that individual from all these other heroes. So what what sort of King Arthur do we get in Geoffrey's book? What's he like? In Geoffrey of Monmouth's account, Arthur is uh, a, a rather sort of brutal, psychotic warlord. Um, we don't get things like the sword in the stone. We don't get the round table. We don't get all the romances uh, like sort of Guinevere and, and Lancelot, uh, the Lady in the Lake. All those things aren't in it at all. They're, they're all later romantic bolt-ons to the story to try and humanise Arthur to try and make him more chivalric, uh, to make him more of, of a likeable person. Because the Arthur that we see in Geoffrey, he's very much the sense of a Celtic or, or early medieval warlord. He's very quick to anger. He slays the innocent. He's an empire builder. He, in the account, he, he conquers Norway, he conquers France, uh, he attacks the Roman Empire. He is, is um, very much a very sort of angry, he's a very angry man, but he's a very bloodthirsty individual and he's not inherently likeable. But that's exactly what a, a medi early medieval warlord is like. He, it, they focus on the, the bravery, the, the heroism on the field of battle. So we see Arthur going into sort of a, a berserker mode and killing hundreds of people. And it's all about the um, spreading of blood and it's also about death and killing. So in that sense, when you look at it from a modern perspective, he's a very hard character to like. And I think that's why his position was, was softened over time and we get all these other elements added to the story and it makes it more... I mean, every generation 
reinvents Arthur. We see it today. There's, there's movies coming out at the moment about King Arthur's TV series. Um, every generation adds something to the story and it becomes ever bigger and bigger uh, and we lose sight of the actual origins of the story. So even though he seems quite an unlikable person from what you've just told me, did the people at the time, they they respected how he was. They respected this idea of the bloodthirsty warlord who could go around... What was their reaction to that? Oh, yes. I mean, I think it's uh, Jeffrey's writings hit the, the time exactly right. I mean, we're looking at a time in the 1130s when England's uh, convulsing in civil war between Stephen and Matilda. We're looking at uh, an, an Anglo-Norman, certainly Norman aristocracy, who are uh, bent on sort of controlling the English and controlling the state. But this sense of a warrior who is... Uh, has got a long and, and uh, sort of distant and honourable background, but is also an empire builder who is creating control uh, in in France, uh, who is conquering Scandinavia, who is involved in the Mediterranean. That fits the Norman agenda perfectly because that's what they were doing. They were trying to extert, extend and exert control across the rest of, of Western Europe. So I think Arthur, they identified with him. And of course, on a very simple level, uh, Arthur and Geoffrey of Monmouth, he is slaying the English and he's controlling them. And that's what the Normans were doing. And so they tapped into this sense of a hero, a warrior, a strong man, but also the sense that Arthur's got this tradition going right the way back to the earliest times in Britain. So he's got a legitimacy, which the Normans want as well. And you can see that a lot of the Norman aristocracy built their castles or their homes on places which were resonant in British mythology. So we see rebuilding at Tintagel, which is linked with the sort of uh, Tristan, Isolde and King Mark legend. And so there's a castle there. We see building at Carnarvon in North Wales because it's linked with a, a character called Maxon who appears in the, the Mabinogion, the series of, of Welsh tales. So they're desperate to link into that mythology and they use it. And, and Geoffrey's book, as it comes out in the 1130s, is exactly the right time for, for that sort of mentality. It fits perfectly with the Norman agenda. Yeah, why do you think that he actually became more of a heroic figure later on? I think it, it, it's it's, uh, it's moving with the times, really. So we get things like uh, the Holy Grail, the quest. We get sort of a, a better, sort of a more religious element to the Arthur character. Um, we also get the sort of the, the doomed romance between himself, between Guinevere and, and Lancelot. So we get all these concerns that are going on in later societies are being added to the Arthur story. So he he changes, he becomes, in some instances, he becomes more of a, a background character because other knights, uh, Percival um, and, and Galahad and, and so on, gain more preeminence pre- pre- in, in the tale. So I think that, that's a good way for the way that the story survives, is that other minor characters, I mean, you say it with something like Harry Potter, couldn't you, that um, it's not just the main character, you've got lots of secondary issues and it's their background story that becomes important and makes the story last longer and become more interesting for for an audience and that really happens with with um king arthur um, he gets modified he gets changed he becomes more of a flawed hero but ultimately more heroic because of that because he becomes more more human we can see his personality yeah he is there's some deep flaws in it the version that Jeffrey gives us, he's got no flaws. He's got, um, there's no sense of romance. There's no sense of, of uh, humanity in him at all. It's only as we've been more concerned with humanity, you know, as an audience, we see that developing in, in King Arthur himself. 
Let's talk about these five people that may have yes. inspired Arthur. Um, I, shall we go through them one yeah. by one? So, well, when you when you look at uh, say Arthur's life, um, it, it's all repetitious. I mean, it might be part of uh, Geoffrey Monmouth's idea to to put down the story of, of, and you can see Arthur's life repeating what's gone before. It looks perhaps like a, a divine plan. Mm-hmm. You know, Arthur is getting better and better, and Arthur's the ultimate element. But you can see that Arthur's early life. Uh, coming to the crown very young, uh, fighting battles around York, restoring the cities of Britain. This is what's already happened to a character called Ambrosius Aurelianus, uh, who's seen as being two generations before Arthur. Um, Arthur's conquest of the Orkney Islands, which appears in Geoffrey of Monmouth, uh, the marrying of uh, Queen Ganhumara, who's supposed to be the greatest beauty in the island, uh, and then refusing to pay tribute to the Roman Empire. This is what happens to a character called Arviragus in the first century AD. He supposedly conquers the Orkneys, marries a queen called Genvissa, who's the greatest beauty in the island, and then he refuses to pay tribute to Rome. So that's an element in Arthur's life that has already happened to somebody else. Then we get Arthur uh, invading France, attacking Paris, killing the Roman emperor and about to invade Italy. That happens to two separate characters. We've got Constantine the Great, who in AD 306 is made emperor in York, takes an army to the continent, um, defeats and kills the Roman emperor Maxentius outside Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it happens more spectacularly with an individual called Magnus Maximus, who also gets remembered in lots of Welsh legend and folklore in the Mabinogion and so on, who in 383 AD is illegally made emperor, goes to France, attacks Paris. Um, the Roman emperor Gratian is killed. He prepares to invade Italy. So these two events are also replicated in Arthur's story. And in the end, when Arthur has to return back to Britain because his treacherous nephew, uh, Mordred, has betrayed him, um, there's a battle at, at Camlan. Um, Arthur has to reinvade Britain with 500 ships and the, uh, Mordred dies and Arthur's mortally wounded. This has already happened to a chap called Cassie Balown, uh, or Cassie Valornus, as we understand him today, in the first century BC. He's betrayed by his nephew, um, Mandubracius, and he invades Britain with 500 ships as Caesar had done. So Arthur's birth, his early life, his uh, marriage, his midlife crisis when he goes and invades France and the dramatic end, these are all elements that have already happened. When you take them away from Arthur's story, there's nothing left for Arthur. Mm-hmm. So okay. the, basically the reason why he seems to echo through history is the, the character that Geoffrey gives us is an echo of other people. Now the question there is, did Geoffrey know this? Or is he just um, confused? Or is he, I I suspect he's just trying to create a a Celtic superhero at the climax of his story that's quite clearly is doing what everyone else has done before, but on a more spectacular and a grander scale. I heard you sort of theorised that this one person might be is sort of 40% Arthur. yeah, do you want to tell me you about... You can tell, I mean, in, in basic mathematical terms, if you're using Geoffrey of Monmouth as the primary account, you can break down the percentages. Uh, and the biggest percentage, about 39% of his character, is taken from this, this Magnus Maximus, a Roman general who declares war on Rome uh, and attacks Paris and moves down towards Italy. About 16% is uh, Ambrosius Aurelianus, the, the, the 5th and 6th century warlord in Britain, who fights the Battle of Baden Hill. And uh, basically, the, you, you can break down the percentages and see that there is nothing left for Arthur. There's 1% which is unknown in the whole story. And that really relates to the fact that Arthur's credited with conquering Norway 
and Iceland. And no other person in Geoffrey Monmouth's book does that. It might just be a very simple thing of, because a lot of the, the tales at the time would be relating to the Norse, the Vikings, uh, and their assault on Britain uh, in the 9th and 10th century. So it could just be a simple giving it back to them. You know, Arthur is a great character. Not only is he doing what other people have done, but he did slightly more. He conquered Norway. He conquered Iceland. He defeated the homeland of, of, of the Vikings. But, but for the rest of it, 99% of the rest of the character, you can break down and you can see there's nothing original in Arthur's story. It has all happened to other people. Why do you think Geoffrey chose... If, if he had these people, these inspirations for Arthur, why do you think he then chose Arthur to be the person to, to sort of combine all these people into? He could have just named someone else. He could have made a name up. He could. I mean, I think the, the, the great story that he's building up to is this conflict between the Britons descended from the Trojans and the English. So Arthur fits the right timeline. Uh, he could have put him earlier on, um, perhaps fighting the Romans or fighting some other sort of element before, but that doesn't quite fit Geoffrey's own political agenda. And I think Ambrosius Aurelianus, as a, as a warlord, is at the right time. He is, a lot of stories resonate from him. So Arthur follows on from him. So Arthur sort of bit had a space created for him just after Ambrosius. And that's the perfect time because obviously, you know, Geoffrey and his audience would be knowing that the, the British kings didn't win out in the end. They were, their kingdoms were, were largely lost to the acts of the Saxons and then the Normans. And then you've got the Normans themselves who are trying to press their advantage into Wales, into Cornwall, up into Scotland, into Ireland, into the so-called Celtic homelands. So you can't really have him after. He doesn't fit in after uh, that period. So he's exactly the right point in time. The first Saxon kingdoms, the development of the English aristocracy, Arthur fits in there perfectly. There's no other time zone that he could really exist if Geoffrey wants his story to have resonance. Mm -hmm. So did his text inspire the later literature that came in the medieval period? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, Geoffrey is, is writing had had a massive impact at the time. We talk about medieval bestseller. I mean, it's difficult to know how many copies were shifted because these are all written by hand and copied by hand, but certainly has a huge impact. And so you can see the impact on writers like Shakespeare. You can see uh, Thomas Mallory. You can see that at certain key points in, in British history, um, Arthur is reinvented and is recreated. And he's certainly taken on board on the continent. We see a whole series of French romances which, which develop the story even further yep. and add more sort of things like the love triangle between, uh, between Arthur, uh, his Queen Guinevere and his chief knight Lancelot, which are probably there. We can see a, a version of that in Cornish mythology with King Mark and Tristan and Isolde is there in essence. And that's added to the story and more people are added to the mix. And it's getting continually reinvented even today. You've got things like Merlin that was on uh, the BBC recently. You've got uh, King Arthur, um, um, Legend of the Sword film just out now. All these add more to the stories. So it, it confuses it and, and it makes it a bigger tale. But Geoffrey is where the whole thing begins. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Before this piece of work, before the History of the Kings, how did Arthur appear? Was he sort of, um, was he a word of mouth kind of legend? I think he is. I mean, we, we get little references to, uh, in, in the Gododin, we hear, this is a, a, a sort of 8th, ninth century poem, we hear of a, a brave character who, who was no Arthur. So there's a sense that Arthur perhaps is equated with a, a, a hero, a warrior in, in, in the past. But, but William of Malmesbury, who is um, a, a, you know, a, a more overtly English writer in the early 12th century, he complains that he hears stories of Arthur. All of, the Britons are infused by this idea of an Arthur. So there's a sense that stories are being told about him, but nothing's been written down. And Geoffrey Monmouth himself in the 1130s, when he writes the book, says um, there were no stories of the British kings, including Arthur, but many had learned them by heart as if they had been written. So I think it's a ceiling. There's a great oral tradition in Britain, but Geoffrey's one of the first people to actually convert that onto the page, as it were, onto the parchment and actually start writing it down. Now, the trouble with oral tradition is, is we the mechanisms of passing a story down from generation to generation, we, we don't fully understand. But you can look at somewhere like Afghanistan or, or you know, um, sort of general area in the East, and you've got oral stories relating to Alexander the Great, you know, the 4th century BC Macedonian general, which was still being told in the 19th century AD. So stories can be passed down for a significant period of time. There is alteration, there is change in that. But uh, I think at the time Geoffrey was writing, lots of people were discussing Arthur and talking about it, and he was involved in lots of sort of perhaps heroic tales. But it's Geoffrey who conveys that down, who writes it down for the first time. And it's difficult. We don't know how much he's added to that story, whether he's conveying it exactly as he heard it or whether he is changing it for his own benefit. But it's quite clear that the character of Arthur himself, he's a composite hero. Um, why, why do you think people have always been fascinated with Arthur right through till today. I mean, you mentioned that we still have the film, we still have the books coming out every year, you know, King Arthur, you know, we have all these stories. Why are people so interested in him? I think the great, I mean, Arthur's a great sort of flawed character. In his youth, he's portrayed as heroic and romantic and handsome. And then, you know, in later stories, we, we get um, the, the, the love triangle, you get the whole sort of doomed romance and he becomes a rather tragic character. So that there's a sort of a human interest element in there. But because he's such a, a chameleon in the sense that his story gets changed by every generation. So if you want him as a great romantic lead, you've got the, the stories. If you want him as um, a sort of a, a more religious character, you've got the whole uh, quest for the grail coming into there. You've got um, other aspects of the story. You've got wizards, you've got dragons, uh, and he gets reinvented now for, for the gaming community. And you, you get sort of sense of, um, you know, the new films add the, the you say it's more of a Lord of the Rings side to it, mythology and, and, and um, spectacular special effects. So the basics of the story means that it can continually be reinvented. He's not just tied to one place in the world or one time zone. I mean, the trouble with something like Robin Hood is he is a character who is popular, but he's fixed in time and space. 
Arthur isn't. So he he can change, he can appear in sort of Indian mythology, he can appear in America, he can appear anywhere in the world at any time because it, it, it's, such, it's such a great dramatic story, but it, it's possible to alter it and change it and modify it. And that's what people have been doing for, for hundreds of years. So in a way, he's sort of a hero that everyone can relate to and everyone can sort of, you know, like you said, you can think of him in religious terms or you can think of him in the heroic terms or you can think of him as this bloodthirsty warlord. Well, exactly. I mean, in a way, thank goodness he has been changed because if he'd stayed exactly as the the, the prototype model that Geoffrey gives us, he's a deeply unlikable individual. We wouldn't be telling stories of Arthur now if he was just fixed as this psychopathic He might have been a villain. Murder. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. He, he might have been portrayed as, as the villain of the piece. But because he's been altered, because he's been changed, we can all identify with an aspect of him and all the hangers-on. There's, there's such a, a cast of characters around him from his queen to his knights to his wizards and everything around. There's always some character you can identify with and, and follow their particular story. Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, I was going to ask, what did medieval people make of Arthur? We can see, I mean, uh, uh, the whole thing about um, Arthur and this sense of, I mean, the thing that runs all the way through um, Geoffrey's text is this idea of a Trojan heritage that the Britons are actually descended from refugees from the sack of Troy. And that's what Roman culture was essentially built on, the, the, the idea that they weren't Greek, they weren't Italian, they were Trojan. And that's an idea that um, the Normans loved because they'd like to tap into this sense of a, a warrior culture. The Plantagenets loved. Uh, and in, in the Tudor period, you've got a sense that Henry VII, when he comes to the throne, has no real legitimacy. We, we, there, there's some significant doubt about his genealogy and his links, his ability to rule and his right to rule. But he plays on his Welsh heritage. And again, that sense of an earlier, deeper Trojan um, identity. Henry VIII, when he break, makes the break with the Roman Church, uses things like Geoffrey of Monmouth to show that British culture has, is more deeply embedded than that of the Roman Catholic Church. Christianity here was here before. It gives legitimacy to the church, idea of the Church of England. So you can see that. You can see when Queen Elizabeth is um, threatened by the Spanish Armada, there is, they play on these deeper underlying themes. So it's something that's always being reused for propaganda versions right the way through time. And it's trying to identify all those various twists and turns when the story changes. And again, looking back at the context, why has it changed? What's the audience for? And part of my research has really been looking at not just Arthur, but the idea of origin myths in general because they can seem absurd. You know, a, 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 a tribe in Scotland saying they're uh, descended from the Egyptians or from, um, you know, from the Scythians or so on, they seem absurd to us. But when you look at the context that these stories are being told and the audience for their thought, they make sense. And the idea of a Trojan inheritance certainly makes sense in Britain in the first century AD when Iron Age tribes wanted to be Roman. So we can, it, it's all about trying to identify context and meaning and not just sweeping something away and saying, that sounds absurd, it must be absurd, I'm not going to use it as evidence. You've got to try and work out why it's being written in the first place. So what prompt, prompted you to decide to look at this book in terms of what might be true about it or what, the con what context is around it and not like other historians dismiss it as a piece of... Mythology. I think. I think, like like most people, I've always been interested in Arthur. Always been interested in that period and the lack of evidence in it. Um, and and looking at Geoffrey, I've always felt that there, there are things there that can be proven, and we shouldn't just 
dismiss it entirely. But what really sort of um, swung it for me was a few years ago, we were involved in an excavation um, inside Stonehenge and Stonehenge features in Jeffrey and Monmouth. It's one of the, the big sites that Ambrosius builds. Um, but what we found in excavations there, and indeed what's always been found, anyone who's ever dug inside Stonehenge has found lots of Roman material and sub-Roman, late Roman evidence. And that's the time that Ambrosius, the king, is alive. And you've got Amesbury just down the road, which is uh, Ambrosius's burr. So he's, a, he's, he's in the landscape somewhere. But by finding lots of late and sub-Roman archaeology around Stonehenge, it's clear that something's going on there in that period. And it could be that what we're really seeing in Geoffrey Monmouth is not the sense of these stones being brought from Ireland by giants and wizards and so on. It relates to a coronation. It relates to a modification of the stones in the late Roman period. And it was that that made me think, well, actually, perhaps there is more to this account than we previously thought. If we just think of wizards and giants moving stones, that's preposterous. But if it's the remembrance of a real event, sculpturing the interior of Stonehenge and a coronation for a real king who existed, then that actually gives us another way into to this particular study, to this particular book. So Merlin is in this book as well. Merlin's there. Uh, one of the things, of course, that has been changed in later stories of Arthur is that Merlin becomes Arthur's advisor, his, his wizard. In Geoffrey and Monmouth, the two never meet. Um, Merlin is the character who gets, manages to uh, conspire the liaison between Uther Pendragon and um, Igraine, who's the, the Queen of Cornwall. He gets them together. Um, he's the one who advises Ambrosius to, to build the stones at Stonehenge, but he's got no connection with Arthur. So the bringing of the two together is part of one of these later changes uh, of the story to have the king and his advisor. It, it sort of makes more sense to have them together, although Geoffrey never connects the two in, uh, at all. Bringing it back to Geoffrey and Geoffrey's work, why, why do you think it's been... What, what did people make of it at the time? What did people think? What was this? Did it get criticised straight away? It's it's very hard because you don't obviously get reviews written at the at the time. And it, we talk about it being a medieval bestseller. Again, we we don't know how many copies were out there and were circulating. It certainly has an impact with later stories and development. And uh, there's, there's a great um, sort of comment by William of, of Newborough, who's writing in about 1190, who says that uh, everything Geoffrey says is made up. It's lies. He has this love of lying, which is a fairly sort of damning review. But there were obviously uh, English historians at the time didn't like it because it, it's basically saying everything that they've said is wrong and they've missed out this whole other swathe of, of evidence. But it was very much liked by the Normans. It was very much liked by the monarchy. So we can see it as a story developing at, at key times in the Plantagenet era through the Tudors. Uh, Henry VII and Henry VIII latched upon this to illegitimised their rights to rule, their background history, and, and so on. So they took it on board during the Elizabethans as well with a sort of war with Europe to try and um, sort of... Britain and England certainly is trying to reinvent itself. And these Trojan myths and Arthur mythology and Arthur tales had another resonance there too. So there are certain key points where, where the story develops and is adopted and loved and changed. By and large, when it came out, people loved it because it is ultimately an heroic tale. Um, and it's very much setting the scene that this king is defending his people, his nation against external influences. So I think generally people loved it. It's only in the more sort of 17th, 18th, certainly 19th century, people looked more critically at Geoffrey and Monmouth and thought, 
this is all fantasy. This doesn't fit the historical evidence that we're aware of. It doesn't fit any archaeological evidence and therefore it's all made up and we're going to ignore it. And that's really been the prevailing view up until fairly recently has there been this view that you can't believe anything Geoffrey says, therefore we're not going to look at him. But if you want to understand King Arthur, you've got to look at him because that's where the story begins. I'm always of the view that you go back to the primary evidence and look at that. And if you want to understand Arthur, you've got to read, you've got to understand the context of Geoffrey of Monmouth. This is slightly unrelated, but what challenges do you face as a historian and archaeologist um, researching such an early part of British history um, compared to, for example, someone who's looking into the Tudor period? The the big problem uh, with researching this particular time period, the, the sub-Roman period, or even, I suppose, the pre-Roman period, is the lack of reliable sources. Uh, I mean, we still refer to it, and people still colloquially, as, as the Dark Ages. Um, in a sense, anything sort of pre-Norman era, there are so few sources that have survived. Uh, few sources that were written down, but you've got events, obviously, like in the, in the Tudor period, the dissolution of the monasteries. You've got the vast storehouses of British literature were burned to the ground, books destroyed, mm-hmm. knowledge eradicated. So that's been a problem too. But in the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th centuries AD, Britain's on the fringes of the Mediterranean world. So historians there aren't concerned what's going on. And what we've got are confused religious fables. I mean, Gildas is our best source. He's writing at some point in the early 6th centuries AD, but what he writes is a robust religious sermon. It's full of very blood and thunder language. It's not very objective. So it's almost impossible to go through his texts and try and identify dates, events and real people. So if you're looking at it from a historical point of view, there isn't really much to go on. Um, Archaeologically, it's better but, you know, archaeology is more about uh, ordinary people, settlements, farmsteads, storage pits. It doesn't really tell us about the big names in history, the kings, the queens, the rulers, the generals. So you've got a wealth of archaeological evidence, but very little historical. And it's trying to marry those two th- aspects together and, and try and understand. We're only, we're only ever going to get a real partial idea of what's going on in Britain uh, at this critical time. But I think it's, it's such an emotive time. It's where lots of our great primal myths begin. And of course, it all relates also to the arrival of, of the first English kingdom. So the creation of England, the creation of Wales as a, as a kingdom, the, the, the creation of Scotland, it's the formation of the United Kingdom is in this time period. So it's a very fascinating time, but ultimately it's, it can also be frustrating given the, the lack of, of useful resources. So what's, what challenges, um, what was the biggest challenge for you writing your most recent book? The biggest challenge for me writing this book has really been, um, I suppose, not just the the absence of sources, but because so many people over time have said, don't look at Geoffrey of Monmouth. It's it's fantasy, (laughs) it's myth. Uh, And you can see that. You can see that uh, it's it's very much out there in what he says. It's quite strange. But if you want to understand Arthur, you've got to begin there. And if you want to try and make use of it, by understanding the context it was written, you can identify these historical truths. And I've always been felt that we shouldn't just dismiss something because it doesn't quite fit our idea of what should be right. Mm -hmm. Everything should be looked at and understood in the context it was written, the audience it was for. And then we can start analysing, we can start finding truths within that. And that helps us understand the past. If we just dismiss evidence because it doesn't say what we want it to say, then we're in danger of misrepresenting the past. 
anything that discusses and describes the past is useful because it gives you an idea. It sets you off on your process of, of, of discovery and, and research. So, uh, yes, it's been difficult um, and I'm sure there's still more work to do, but I think it was effectively trying to get Jeffrey back uh, onto and, and use him as a, as a very useful source of, of primary information for Britain. That was Miles Russell. Arthur and the Kings of Britain, The Historical Truth Behind the Myths, is out now, published by Amberley. And Miles will also be speaking about Arthur and Geoffrey of Monmouth at our York History Weekend, running from the 24th to 26th of November. Head to historyweekend.com for the full lineup and to purchase tickets. Well, that's about it for today, but please do listen in on Thursday when we're going to be talking to Neil Ferguson about networks. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.